Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Hello, Joel, my friend. <laughs> Hello, where's where's the shalom, man? Shalom, also shalom. Hello, bonjour, hola, everything. All the aboves. It's all in there. Aloha. <laughs> so you sent me a text um, with some Xbox news. Does that mean that you ordered one? Are you kidding me? No way. They said they were GameStop going to have a big inventory of them today at 10 a.m. And so I went and stood in line for an hour and a half at Walgreens to get my second dose of the COVID vaccine. Mazel tov. Yeah, and at 9.58 Eastern Time, I'm logging on and refreshing the GameStop website as fast as I can to see what kind of inventory they have. Sold out, sold out, sold out, sold out, sold out. Nothing. Maybe one of our listeners will just gift you an Xbox. I just don't think I should take (laughs) GameStop, Walmart, Target, Best Buy, any of them literally when they tell me they have... (laughs) Any inventory at all. You think it's more symbolic? I think it's just <laughs> symbolic. We we intend to offer it to you at some point and in some way, but we can't literally sell it to you. Well, our uh, bridges from our introduction to the theme of our episodes are getting uh, either better and better or much worse as time progresses. But needless to say... We will be talking about today the discrepancy, the gap, uh, the conflict perhaps between when uh, a religious text or a person or perhaps a law says something and it's very clear or maybe not, but uh, of what it says literally in terms of the specificity of it. Um, but sometimes we don't take it literally, and sometimes maybe we're not meant to take it literally, or we don't think we are, and so we take it symbolically, or at its, you know, some people talk about kind of losing the forest for the trees and high altitude and low level, and so I think we're going to get into that a little bit. Yeah, me too. It, it, I, as we were preparing. And then I'm going to play Xbox while Joel is sad. <laughs> I can play <laughs> Xbox. It's just old school. <laughs> Oh, I love that Xbox One is old school. Right. That's <laughs> right. I, I think this might be like the center of a lot of uh, religious versus irreligious arguments. And I think it's also like uh, the internal debate that religious people have within themselves. I think. I think the literal versus symbolic differentiation is the core of a lot of that debate. We all depend on texts in some way to remind us who we are and who God is and what God wants. But then what people read in that text literally versus what people think it means when they interpret it or pull the symbology out of those literal words, that becomes the argument and that causes denominations to split in half. It causes friends to get angry with one another. It causes preachers and uh, congregation folk to misunderstand one another. If the preacher means that literally, oh no. If the preacher is meaning that symbolically, maybe. And you have to, it's hard to tell sometimes which one we're doing 
And, and I can't just walk around, no matter what I'm saying, and clarify. Note, the following sentence will be taken literally, or the following paragraph should be heard symbolically. I, I have to trust somehow that they know where I'm coming from. Uh, absolutely. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head symbolically in that uh, it, it really gets to the core of a, a word we used last week that maybe some people looked up of, of hermeneutics of how we interpret text. And, uh, you know, in Judaism, for me, it, it, uh, another high level of that core is, who do you believe wrote the Torah, wrote the, uh, wrote the five books of Moses? If you believe, if one believes that God wrote it, and of course, right, what does it mean that God wrote it? But there are lots of midrashim and stories on that. But if you believe that God is the author of the text, you are more likely to view it more literally than one that doesn't. And and that speaks to authority. That speaks to, again, the specificity of the words, because if God wrote it, uh, God isn't going to make the same kind of grammatical and linguistic mistakes that we make. So if God wrote something, God probably means it, right? And then we're going to follow it a little bit differently. I'll tell you, for me, that I think of two things. One is a conversation I had with a very good friend in rabbinical school that talked about language in this distinction that we're talking about. And he used the, the common phrase that, you know, someone's heart is breaking, as an example, we all know what that means. No one is going to dispute. Oh my God, are they in the hospital? Like they're like no one actually thinks uh, when someone says that they're that someone's heart is God forbid physically broken in two, and then of course dead. We understand that it's an emotional. It's an emotional place of hurt, of sadness. Their heart is broken, but many examples, most examples, are not that clear. And from a religious standpoint, and I, I apologize if I mentioned this on another episode, but we're, we're going to get into it a little bit more now, is I think about the biblical commandment, uh, which is an important one, of not putting a stumbling block before the blind. The commandment is in the negative. Do not put a stumbling block before the blind. And if you took that literally, the commandment is ridiculous. I mean, you, you could take it literally. It would mean when you see a blind person, don't be a jerk and take, you know, a cement block and put it in front of them so that they actually trip. That's what it would mean literally. But no one seriously contends that that's what that commandment means. Even people that do believe the Torah, the Bible was written by God, right? Like you don't think that's what it means. You think it means something symbolic of don't make things harder for someone than it already is and be compassionate and empathetic and all those things. Um, but sometimes I, I wonder how do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line between what we take as, okay, the commandment's saying this, and even if it's difficult, even if maybe I don't want to follow it, this is what it says, versus this is what I want it to say, or more generally or symbolically, this is what it says. So that's my little opening riff. Uh, I'd love to hear you, uh, you, you go off of that. I love that you brought up that stumbling block image. It, Jesus used that when he was teaching several times, but the one that really comes to mind for me right now is Paul uses that in one of his letters. I think it's Romans for some reason, um, like 12, 13, 14. Uh-oh, I'm getting 
Now, I'm getting Bible content tested here. How good yeah, is Pastor we'll put, it, we'll put it in the show notes. How good is Reverend Joel's memory of where something is in Scripture? But Paul talks about uh, food that has been sacrificed to idols being used at the community meal. And some of the people in the community kind of agree, hey, idols don't exist. So, and the meat is cheap. So we can eat it and it's no harm to our God because we don't believe in these stupid idols. Those idiots who sacrificed it to those idols, ha, ha, ha. It's like getting a discount and getting good meat for it. And then there are other people in the community that are pissed because you're bringing something sacrilegious to our church table. How dare you? And inside one community, depending on how you interpret a sacrifice to an idol as a literal sacrifice to a literal idol, it's either sacrilegious or it's just symbolic, y'all. Don't worry about it. And Paul says, hey, don't put a stumbling block in front of each other. There will be people here who think it is or who think it isn't, and just be gentle with each other and don't judge one another for which side of this debate you're on. But find some, if, if you don't think it is, fine, you can eat it. But don't force somebody else to do it and don't eat it in front of them and gross them out. Be gentle with one another. So he is using that stumbling block before the blind commandment in scripture for me as a symbolic representation in his own use. So it, it's wild. If anybody was to think of it as, and there we have literal symbolic, literal symbolic, literal symbolic, right? It's going back and forth, back and forth in this whole vision. And I wonder if most people realize anybody that tries to take scripture literally, they're in trouble. There's no way. But, we have to make interpretive assumptions constantly when we hear the literal words of Scripture. We are all making personal, experiential, contextual interpretations of those so that they have symbolic meaning in our life today as opposed to the literal words that they, that they say. So while you were talking, Joel, about Paul, uh, I was thinking of another example from Jewish tradition that it, this one is a little more practical than the, the stumbling block example, and it has to do with keeping kosher. Uh, that one phrase, there's one dictum in the Torah um, from which we get a whole slew of kosher laws, and that's namely... Um, it, it, it's, and it's actually listed three times in the Torah, the first in Exodus, do not cook a kid in its mother's milk. And so, again, very literally, if you had, a, a, you know, and I'm not a farmer nor a hunter, so I, I may get this, I may just destroy this <laughs> comparison. But, you know, if, if you, um, you know, kill, if you hunt a, a mother and its child, you can't cook the meat of the child in the milk of the mother. That's what the verse is saying. But the way that kosher laws work is, and I, and I know you know this, I see you nodding, 
Is it some, our rabbis later on said that it's essentially a prohibition of mixing milk and meat. And so, you know, when you and I uh, would go to Grooveburger all the time, which I very much miss uh, going to with you, um, one who keeps kosher can't have a hamburger, assuming even if the hamburger was kosher, but can't have a hamburger with a milkshake, even though you're not violating the literal uh, words of the law. Um, now, interestingly, there are people that will say that they keep biblical kosher, which means that they will mix meat and milk, but they literally will not mix, uh, you know, a kid in its mother's milk, and they won't eat shrimp and pork and the forbidden animals because those are listed in the Bible. And so there's biblical kosher, um, but interestingly, that's the that's not the norm. The norm is just not to mix milk and meat at all, even though that is not what the Torah says. And what is the symbolic interpretation? of that command. I, I'm sure that's highly debated and it means something to someone kind of like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't assume that mom is grabbing a baby God and forbid. chucking it out the back door with a tub of dirty bathwater, but we know what that means idiomatically. And I wonder what that, that Hebrew idiom is interpreted to mean by rabbis who don't take it as literally, but listen for it more symbolically. Yeah, I mean, and that, I think that's a great question because there's no answer to that. I mean, what, and this is, this is in some ways both the beauty and challenge of symbols. It's kind of like, I mean, an extreme example of that is someone, um, you know, displaying what might be an offensive symbol to some and be like, well, I just like the artwork, right? You know, kind of pleading innocence or ignorance. You know, we, in, to some degree with symbols, you, it can mean whatever whatever you want it to mean. But there's also a, a community resonance and it's certainly a historical resonance. Well, we can debate right here and come to some semi-possible list of things it might mean. Like, you know, the old don't look a gift horse in the mouth, right? You don't want to look at it. Look, it's a free horse. You don't check its teeth, man. You just say thank you and walk it home. Uh, but this one like the mother's milk is intended to feed the baby, not to cook it, right? So if you have something that is trying to grow and sprout and is being nourished with something, you don't cut off the nourishment and even worse, kill the new growing idea or concept or project with a very... Um, stuff that was designed to feed it and nourish it and let it grow. Uh, preach, Reverend, preach. That, no, I mean, th th by the way, what you just did is is a perfect example of, I think, how Reformed Judaism and, dare I say, liberal religion, and I don't mean government liberal, po politically liberal, I mean theologically liberal, works. I mean, that that's that's what we do as well. So, for example, last week's Torah portion um, is in the middle of Leviticus having to do with bodily uh, fluids and emanations and impurity. And so much of it not only is relevant to modern life, but is almost anathema or even offensive. And yet it is our job, and not as clergy, just as Jews, when we read that passage, to find something that is meaningful, that is relevant, that challenges us to behave or think in a different way. And so th that's a perfect example of how we do that. But at the same time, from a more traditional perspective, 
it could be seen, and of course, I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate here, that can be seen as a cop-out because that's not what the text says. And, you know, I, I, I joke sometimes with my congregants about, um, you know, theses that I didn't write in rabbinical school. So, you know, I wrote a thesis, but, you know, at, I've out of the, I'm into the rabbinate 15 years now, and there's always ideas that come to me. It's like, oh, this would be a good idea for a thesis. And this topic is one of the historicity of how and when people, communities have chosen to take specific verses literally versus figuratively. Unfortunately, and I'll flip it for a second, one that I think is unfortunate for our society that many people do take literally, as opposed to the boil a kid in its mother's milk or stumbling block for the blind, is a man shall not lie with another man. And that has been taken so literally, in fact, as to point a, you know, the, the sinner label to anyone who, who, who is gay. Um, and, or, and of course, there's lots of argument there, but it doesn't say anything about being a gay woman, uh, which is also true if you take the Bible literally. But um, I don't know, does that play into it in your thinking? Well, from the bigger picture, yes. And I do tend to find like... The, Humanity has this, and I don't like whenever we get dualistic here, but let's just use it for a minute as a spectrum for uh, discussion purposes. It, it does seem to me that those who are conserving tradition, the way things were or the way things are, tend to lean towards more literal interpretation of texts. And those who are attempting to bring change or progress or to liberate liberal free people from some of the bindings of tradition, they tend to read texts more symbolically. And, and I, I see that difference happening in small siege, uh, churches or in little church conversations and classes or whatever. I see it happen in the big seed church, the the national denominational, like the Catholic church, the how they debate what something means. And I see that happening between religions and in, in interfaith conversations. What does that ancient text mean? And I find that despite the differences between faiths or religions, People of very different faiths will agree about the literal meaning of a text if they tend to be more conservative socially and politically. And people of very different faiths will agree about the symbolism of that same text, but not the literal meaning of it, even across time, across faiths, across anything. And and that's interesting to me how... The literal versus symbolic interpretation of a text says more about us than our denomination or our faith or our religion itself. And I was about to say, to put, you know, just to, uh, to put a point on that, is um, that I think that that says more about us than it does about the Bible, than it does about the text. Nice, for sure. See, 
I can't follow Jesus and take scripture literally because Jesus grabbed scripture by the scruff of the neck and said in, in Matthew 5 to 7, what's often called the Sermon on the Mount, he says, here's what you've read the scripture to say, literally, but here is what it has always meant. And he he fusses at the religious leaders who are trying to hold scripture literally. Thou shalt not kill. You've heard it said, thou shalt not kill, right? And he, he gets them all to nod their head along. Well, of course, yes, it says that. And then he goes, you know what it always meant? It means, of course, you won't kill. It also means you won't insult. It also means you won't hate. It also, and he stretches the meaning to say the symbolism of that tight little literal phrase, thou shalt not kill, means you shall not see that person as dead. You shall not speak about them as if you wish they were dead to you. And that Whoa, that mind-blowing, symbolic, metaphorical reinterpretation of that literal commandment bothers the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees big time. But for the people who were being compressed under the literal definition of that, they suddenly felt liberated and they cheered. Uh, and that's what got Jesus killed in the end is, is because he refused to go along with the religious professionals who wanted a literal definition of all these commandments and forced upon the world a new way to see them more symbolically. That's really nice. That's, I, I, I like that a lot. So, so um, when I bump into Christian literalists, I'm like, y'all don't know Jesus very well, do you? <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, any, if, if anyone gets the pleasure of seeing Joel argue with the, uh, what do you call them? The the street gospel people who hold up the signs? Uh, you love those people. Either the, yeah, the street corner <laughs> preachers or the, the milk crate preachers or the uh, bullhorn preachers, right? Yeah, yeah they yeah. have lots of names, I, although I have promised. And I have preached multiple sermons reiterating this promise. I no longer engage them. I don't do it. It is a it's a waste oh, of new. breath. That's new. That's yeah, new. I, I agree that it. it's a waste of breath. Though. What one thing um, that I I think it, it kind of one or rather one thing that kind of gets my hackles is not taking it literally is not the same as not taking it seriously. And that lack of understanding by some makes me crazy. We could, I mean, I, I think it's fair to agree on the dis, agree on the disagreement of how we live out what it says. But to say that I or you or someone else doesn't take it seriously because you're not following it word for word, that is too far. Nice. And for people wondering, Okay, y'all, you said you were going to make religion real. You're going to keep it real and make it relevant. So we're kind of talking scripture and religion here. But if you're listening to this, go ahead and think about the texts all around you that make huge decisions and impact your life. For example, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Scalia argued about stuff at the Supreme Court level, a lot of it was Scalia's bending toward 
literal interpretation of Constitution and RBG's interpretation of the Constitution as symbolic or contextual words that were appropriate in their time. If we were to grab the text, all men are created equal. Guess what, ladies? You're out. <laughs> Only the men are equal. Or even boys, right? Yep, they're out too. And when they said that at the time, they would later write a law saying, well, if your skin's too dark, you're only three-fifths of a human. You're not really equal. And their ability to write that new law, literally, was in the it was uh, conflicting with the original. All men are created equal, y'all. We said it. We can't have somebody that's now three-fifths and somebody else that's one. That Three-fifths doesn't equal one. But they found a way to interpret it so they could literally hold the old power. And that's what I tend to find is those who are willing to read symbolically are willing to challenge old powers and see if we can hold ourselves to the ideals behind our text, all people, all humanity is created equal and should be treated with the same justice and standards and legal processes. Uh, but but there, when you're holding it literally, you're trying to preserve some cute little difference that gives you power over others in the group. Uh, and I, it drives the drives me crazy to see oh, literalists yeah. using literal text to do nothing except protect themselves. But I, I, I like what you said to, to bring it back to kind of, you know, real life, so to speak, in that it, there, there is so much resonance. It's kind of like, um, you know, if, you, if you're thinking of a number, you'll just see that number everywhere in your life. But, but this uh, tension between uh, literalness and uh, metaphor or symbolic uh, is everywhere, especially in law. I mean, and, and recently, too, uh, we talked about this last week in terms of court cases, but free speech. You know, when is it kind of a, a symbolic thing and when is it not? And there are times for each. And and the courts basically decide that. Now, sometimes we like what they say and sometimes we don't. But, th but they get to decide that. And what, what did Scalia call himself? Was it an originalist? That sounds you remember, right. Joe? Yeah, you're yeah, probably the so, pro on that, but more than me. And, and th there's so much uh, resonance for me in that of when when people ask me all the time, "Well, Rabbi, the Torah says this. What does it mean?" Well, what I, like that question is a difficult question. Like, what does it mean to me? What did it mean to the author of the Torah? Those are very different questions. I could tell you what it means to me, and hopefully, after five years of seminary, I could tell you what it meant to some smarter people than me, right? Like, you know, the famous rabbis or what the Talmud said about it. But I can't tell you definitively what does it mean in the same way that when you watch Star Wars, you can't definitively tell me what the force is. You could tell me your opinion and quote all these things. You could you could quote an interview that George Lucas gave in the 70s. But ultimately, I mean, there's no answer. There's answers. There's no answer. Yeah. The more I study the, the scriptures and the historical context of when they were written and why they were written and who, who might have written them, I, I get I think I get better and better at understanding why that person or those persons said that then. Like if you really study the history, 
the words make so much more sense. They, it, and then I can start to look at our current time and wonder, hmm, oh, how is our time similar or different than that? So if, if they wrote that then in that time, what would be the words I would write today and this time that sound similar and that honor the, the truths that point to the big God and God's will and God's community that they were grasping for? Can I equally grasp for them now when I try to find words for a sermon or something like that? That's my goal. And it's never to pick up one little command from 743 BCE and plop it on people who live 2021 COVID. That command, it, it won't make any sense anymore. I, I get it why it was probably really stupid to eat certain kinds of meats or certain kinds of dairy way back then. People didn't know a lot about salmonella and and all the diseases and bacterias that grow quickly in those foods. But they saw when a certain person ate a certain thing, they got really sick, maybe even died. And so there was like a rule. Okay, no more. It reminds me of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, right? You are you have all these women who are getting um, vaccinated with it, and six of them have this weird clotting thing. So the CDC goes, you know what? Shut it down for a minute. We need to study. That reminds me of do not eat pork, do not eat shellfish, right? I, that I know I'm I'm probably getting in trouble with some of, some of my Jewish no, that, listeners. That's, that's interesting, and it, it makes sense. One- Just shut it down for a second. Let's pause and do a little study. But in a in a little bit, people are going to go. You know what? We've learned more. It's okay. Keep going. And I wonder why that's not in Numbers and Deuteronomy. Okay, y'all, we've learned. If you cook shrimp, they're okay. Go for it. <laughs> that should be in Deuteronomy somewhere. But sadly, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> One other place that that I think is important to mention is where uh, we go, where Jewish law has gone from the specific to the metaphor, is uh, an eye for an eye. So the Talmud debates an eye for an eye. And I mean, this is the beauty of the Talmud. They say, well, what if Joel blinds me, blinds my left eye? What if he takes just a huge stick and he's so frustrated with me because I forgot to write the description of the podcast yet again. And he just, he blinds (laughs) my left eye with a big stick. And what am I allowed to do? Well, according to eye for an eye, I'm allowed to do the same to him. But the Talmud says, but what if Joel is already blind in his right eye? By me stabbing his left eye, he's going to be completely blind. Whereas what he did to me, he quote unquote only made me half blind. And so there's a sense of equity, not in terms of the specific punishment, but in terms of a larger context of how uh, of what what that person should get based on their current circumstance. And so that's an example, again, of where something is written very literally. And unlike the stumbling block for the blind, it actually kind of makes sense literally. You steal $5 from me, I'm stealing $5 from you. 
Um, and of course, I don't know if Gandhi said it. I always learned that it was Gandhi that if everyone followed an eye for an eye, we'd all be blind, which I, I do think is true. But but this idea of Jewish law taking something that was written literally and then in some ways changing it to what I think is a kinder, more sensitive context. Um, and that that is true in traditional Judaism. Um, and so it's always interesting to me where Jewish law does, like I said before, does go that route of the more general metaphor and when it doesn't. Yeah, Jesus brings that one up too. The eye for eye, tooth for tooth one. Um, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, don't resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on one cheek, show them the other cheek also. If anyone uh, wants to sue you and take your shirt, give them your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go ahead and walk the second mile. Uh, he he rattles the literal meaning of it, and then throws all kinds of... And now he doesn't mean literally, you have to walk two miles, right? He doesn't mean literally, you have to get punched on both sides of your face. He, Both of those are symbolic of what he's asking for. If somebody's going to injure you, repay them with the ability to take even more injury than, than they intended and for you to hold your integrity to never injure back. And that kind of new interpretation of what it's always meant to follow the law instead of, well, I get to pay you back. You know, stealing five bucks from somebody, that's not equal if this person only has five bucks and that person has five million, right? If I take your last five bucks, right, you don't owe me, it, but you're a five million, a multi-million dollar, a multi-millionaire, it's not equal to get my five back. You you could have killed me by taking my last five. I get five million back from you. You took everything I had. I get to take everything you had. Whoa. Right. If we were going to interpret it literally, we could interpret it that way. And Well, and to, again, going to a, American law and, I mean, world law. And, of course, we're recording this the day after um, what I think both of us think was a, a finally for a, a just verdict, um, by no means taking, you know, any of the pain away from either the family or the African-American community, but, you know, a sliver of, of, of justice. But that, and I don't mean to get sidetracked there, but that we do distinguish between manslaughter and first degree murder and second degree murder. And even though, and, and you know, not to be morbid, the end result is the same. The person dies. There is a legal difference and it's a huge legal difference, right? In terms of um, in terms of what it means for someone's consequence, how they pay for their crimes, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and whereas that's not quite the same thing as taking something literally, it shows a level of interpretive context for a, a literal uh, thing that's happened. That's a great example, the Chauvin and George Floyd moment. Um, yeah, that's that tiny little bit of accountability now that, that Derek Chauvin is feeling. He was guilty on all three charges, but the three charges are uh, symbolic slivers of the grand truth. So if we're going to look at the forest here, George Floyd is dead. And Derek Chauvin's uh, 
active role caused George Floyd's death. The courts have said that. that. And he was guilty on all three counts. And the difference there was a symbolic difference between intent, a symbolic difference between whether he was in, intentional or just negligent or just non-observant, not paying attention, uh, distracted. And what they basically said is yes, yes, and yes. Like he killed him and he's guilty of all of it. He's guilty of being negligent. He's guilty of being distracted. He's guilty of having intent to kill by by putting his knee there. And um, And I like it that somehow the symbolic nuance of all of that didn't matter. The In the end, the literal death of another human being caused by this police officer, he is now held responsible and accountable and culpable for it and will not be suffering eye for an eye. He'll be suffering something and the rest of the community will be protected from him as a police officer with the authority to go do that again. We are now protected from him doing that to anyone else again for a long while, I I pray. Even there, I wonder where people would try to find the literal meaning of that Chauvin killed him versus all the symbolism in, in there and the varying degrees that the law tried to draw to to get him off of killing him. Right. And and I think there's been other examples in our lifetimes where uh, a court case of one person has gone so far beyond that. I mean, I think to when I was in college of the O.J. Simpson trial, um, I mean, those are the uh, maybe Bernie Madoff, but not not with the same um, resonance isn't quite the word, but not the same intensity. Well, there are some things I do take literally, like a financial report. It, when Enron published their financial reports, my assumption is you can take a financial report literally. And then what you realize is actually, no. They were only meaning it symbolically and they were cheating people and lying and evading taxes and pretending like they had income that they didn't and pretending like they had resources that they didn't by not publishing a literal financial statement for their company. And and so there are times when you want the text of a published document to be the literal cold, hard statements of what is and isn't and on a balance sheet or an income expense sheet that's a place where i boy i appreciate when people are super literal (laughs) yeah um and to to talk about those symbolically you can be a bernie madoff dude or you can be an enron exec and get away with things um i'm realizing i'm dating myself by referring to enron so y'all will just have to google that if you need it if you're younger With your old school Xbox One as the counterpoint to that. So is there a text that you struggle with because of what it literally says and you can't find a symbolic meaning for it that you're comfortable with? 
There's tons. We've think, of, think of another good one for us. I mean, when when the when the Israelites are finally about to go to Israel after forty years wandering in the desert, and and God basically says, "Don't worry, I'm going to wipe out all those all those other peoples that are already living there, all those indigenous peoples. You don't have to worry. I'm gonna I'm gonna take care of them." That's one. Wow. So the walls of Jericho. Apparently, there's an archaeological dig in in Israel that is uh, or near Israel that is finding. Actual walls of Jericho now. Oh, wow. I, I wonder if you believe that those walls fell down because the trumpets were really loud. <laughs> right. Well, and people, by the way, th- this is a thing where people um, try to uh, balance archaeological well, fact with textual statements. Um, if I remember correctly from a seminary class, they're called archaeological maximalists, that you try to maximize the connection between Bible and archaeology. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's a whole school of thought in and of itself. But uh, I, I think I know where you were going with this problematic text thing. Uh, do, do you want to share more to, to our listeners? Oh, sure. Well, this is a bit of fun conversation about the literal and symbolism, and, and this is both God. literally and symbolically. <laughs> yeah. I think I we have are, literally had fun. <laughs> me too. We are twenty-two episodes in now, y'all, and we have hit over a thousand listens and downloads. And and gosh, we're just so grateful. Uh, thank y'all for listening and and for writing to us and commenting and tweeting at us occasionally, emailing your ideas. Uh, something that we're going to do after this, this will close season one. Today will be the last episode of season one. And then he, Eric and I are going to back up a bit and and make some plans for season two, which will start sometime later. And it give us a few weeks to get all, all things yeah, lined not up. Too, we're not talking months and months. Just you know, a, f- a few weeks is the plan. Yeah. And the idea is... It's not like Game of Thrones where you're going to have to wait two years. <laughs> <laughs> right. For a season seven that sucked. Um, Correct. <laughs> the idea here is we we realize that in the Hebrew scriptures and in the newer testaments, there are a lot of scriptures, uh, texts that are very problematic for those of us who live in a modern world. Everything from war and violence to human sexuality. There's a lot of texts in there that sometimes religious people use to hurt others or to define things in a, in a pretty tight or rigid way. And that causes problems for folks who are either in religion or beyond religion. And I think Eric and I have come up with a good list of eight, 10, 12 texts and topics that scripture speak to. But boy, it causes problems when you try to put them to uh, relevant use in our modern world. Um, and so that's going to be our whole season two. We're going to dedicate that to problematic texts and how he and I work on those texts and, and rehear them and interpret them in their context and try to put them to use in our current day. If you as a listener have an idea for a text that really bothers you or is problematic for you and you want us to work on, give it to us at religionpodcast at gmail.com and he, or on Twitter at either one of our handles and we'll look for it. Yeah. And I, and I think uh, one reason, at least why I want to do this is because it's so easy, especially in a, for me in a reformed Jewish congregation to not use those texts, right? You know, to, there's a, we, we did a thing on our top five favorite 
quotes or stories. I mean, there's so many beautiful and inspirational texts where you don't have to go through all the work of, you know, finding out or, or, dis, or, or, uh, what's the word, Joe? When discovering, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a better word than that. It'll, I've been trying to think of it literally since before the show, it's kind of <laughs> when you have one thing and you try to balance it with another thing and there's tension between the two, mm-hmm. uh, it's killing me anyway. It, it, it's, it takes work. And, and and one of the reasons why I'm interested in doing this with you is it's going to force me to dig deeper in some of these texts, which frankly, I don't, I, I, I sometimes purposefully shy away from, especially, you know, maybe sometimes talking with kids and, and bar and bat mitzvah. Um, but at the same time, as I tell my congregants that this too is Torah and we, and we can't ignore it. And so I, I think it's a good way to keep ourselves honest also. Right. Perfect. So we'll see y'all in season two. Reconcile. Oh my gosh. Darn it. Thank you for joining us on the Religion podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to religionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.